Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. this morning. Um, the entire uh, chapter. So only three verses last week and all of eight this week. Um, let's go ahead and read that together. Starts like this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy of and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with my house of, or with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by land to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Know from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us. I'm going to pray that we see your beauty more clearly. Lord, let us see that you are worthy. Lord, would you stir awe and wonder in our hearts for the beauty of who you are and your person here, not like us. May we see that, may we worship, and may we exalt you in light of that, God. Pray that in your name, amen. So I still remember the feeling I had um, when I watched The Sixth Sense in 1999. It's almost 25 years old. When I Googled that, that was that one hurt a little bit. Um, if you're not familiar with that movie, it's the only M. Night Shyamalan movie that didn't stink. <laughs> I knew that would happen. We kept waiting for more, but he didn't have it in him. <laughs> uh, alas, uh, he made many more, and they were all terrible. Uh, I saw that movie as a teen in a theater here in Columbia, the whole movie was kind of eerie, um, not quite horror, 
but firmly in the thriller category, right? Suspense. Uh, it's the type of movie that would make kind of the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And uh, as, as a teen watching the movie, I was at that kind of spot where you try and watch and you act like you're not scared, but you are a little bit scared and trying to figure out what's going on. And if you haven't seen the movie, I am definitely going to ruin it for you. Like I said, you had 25 years, so it's not my fault. Um, the whole wow factor of the movie comes uh, with the ending. I mean, it was a good movie. But the ending is what made the, the movie. As the, the movie unfolds uh, and you're trying to wrap your mind around the details, there's this young boy who keeps seeing these weird things. Uh, uh, we have a lot of the kids with us, so I'm, I'm not going to go into the, the depth of all of it. Uh, that's where the thriller part of the movie comes in. Uh, and, and then at the end, it throws you just, just for a loop as it reveals this thing that you just did not know was happening in the movie. The main character, or one of them played by Bruce Willis, all of a sudden you find out he was dead the entire movie. Like everything he did was not real. He was not alive. And every scene that you thought you understood, you actually didn't understand in the proper light of the context of what was actually happening. You were set up, and so was I. The way you experienced the scene was incomplete at best. The immediate line that, that myself and everyone that I heard say after they watched it for the first time was, I've got to go watch it again. Like, I need to go see it again, and I need to see the details again. I need to experience the whole movie, the whole thing, with the clarity that the end brings. Hear that, because that's what you and I need to hold on to. We need to experience this thing with the clarity that the end brings. We need to see the beauty unfold with perfect vision, because once again, there's a bigger picture and once we see the bigger picture, everything changes completely. This is the feeling that I got from Hebrews 8. And I think in some ways it is the feeling that the author wanted us to have when we read it. He says this line in, in verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And this is him referencing the old covenant and the priests and the sacrifices and the tents and, and all of that stuff under the banner of the old covenant. It was all just shadow. It, it, was a, it was a copy. There was always more that the people of God were, were, were meant to, to see. All of these things were a copy and not a carbon copy, like a cheap imitation copy. Like, like if you sat me in front of the Grand Canyon and, and gave me uh, some paper and some artistic tools, I got a little bit of chops. Like I, I could do a good enough job that, that I, I'm pretty sure that you would be able to like guess what it was from my drawing. But there's, there's no way that I would be able to kind of draw out something that would give you the, 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 the full uh, understanding of the size and the scope and the magnitude of the Grand Canyon. It, it would be kind of that kind of copy. This is what the Old Covenant was. It, you could kind of get the idea, but you would not be able to experience the fullness of the real deal. The author is showing us easily we can miss the beauty of the real thing because we get too enthralled with, distracted with, or accepting of lesser things. Things were meant to point you to Jesus, never replace him. All the things that go before him are meant to be shadows, and we do not want to miss the beauty of him. In a gentle but intentional way, the author is saying to your heart and mind, hey, there's more. 
hey, there's more. As we walk through this text, I think the author is also going to try and stir our imagination a little bit. There are times uh, with the Bible when we focus maybe so much on the, the wording that we go through it with a, with a cognitive understanding, but we never actually kind of picture what's going on. And in this text, I'd say, hey, maybe let your God-given imagination breathe a little bit and let your heart begin to kind of dream about the majesty of God, his beauty, his power, the reality, he's not like us, and ultimately the throne of God in the heavens is not like this place either. But as we're going to find in, in part of the text, what it speaks is about is we need to understand the, 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 the heavens and surrounding the throne and worshiping around the throne. We may not understand that yet, but that is your home if you are in Christ. You are an alien here. This is not your home. Before we get into the dreaming, context always matters, right? For seven chapters or maybe 17 sermons, you've experienced the author showing us that Jesus is better. He's the full scope of everything that we need. He's the better hope, the better friend, the better priest, the better promise, the better intercessor, all of that. And triumphantly, the author will kind of uh, tell us, hey, everything that you need, you get all of that in Jesus. And he's kind of kind of uncover it in the text. And you see that because in verse one, he goes, now the point in what we are saying is this. It, it's the, the reveal. If you've ever been to CC's, not the pizzeria, You've experienced this, right? The waiter brings you out food and everyone's is, is laid around the table and they're all covered with that silver dome lid thingy-mabobber. And once everybody's plate is, is in front of them, the waiters come and there's this dramatic moment. They're like, you ready? Okay, okay. I don't know if they practice it, but they, they grab the domes and at the same time, they, and they, and they reveal the food. And there's this wow moment or the nightmare of a vegan, which is a steak before you. And you thank the Lord for all of his goodness as you see the meal, right? This is the type of reveal, a long awaited suspense building, beautiful reveal. The idea is what you've been waiting for so long as I've uncovered before you. What you need is there. The question is, what will you do with it though? Will you grasp a hold of it? Will you taste and see that he is good? Or will you put the cover back on and run to copies and shadows? What will you do? The deeper we dig into Hebrews, I love the author's take on things. He's patient in his build, isn't he? Over and over, he places one block on top of another, on top of another, one aspect of Christ on top of another and another. And he's not going to try and manipulate you, and he's not going to force you, and he's definitely not going to beg you. But the question remains, this is Christ. What will you do with him? Will you grab a hold of him or will you push him away? Will you run towards him or will you strafe around him at a safe distance so you can play with your other toys? What will you do? As we dive into the chapter and the reveal starts happening in front of us, the author begins by placing kind of two categories of priests before us. And, he, and he's going to compare and contrast them according to their seat and their sanctuary. This is literally where they're sitting currently, where their tent is, where they're residing at. This is where the imagination should begin to fire in just a little bit. Not to conjure up fantasy, but to maybe let your heart kind of breathe in the reality of the full beauty. And it starts by saying, we have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty the throne in the heavens, a minister in the, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
This is where Jesus is. He ascended there, and we see this in Matthew 28. John speaks of the throne in Revelation 4, and he speaks of it in detail. He, he, he sees it, and he, and he begins to describe it to you in Revelation chapter 4. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read that. Whatever you need to do to begin to just try and picture it, I would say just go ahead and, and, and do that. But try and actually picture what this is like. This is the throne where Jesus is, where he's ascended to, where he's interceding for us. This is where Christ is. It says this starting in, I believe, second verse. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. The one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnaline. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, right, gathered around it. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning rumbles and peals of thunders. Have your attention yet? And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of the man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around, and within day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Right? Everything I have, my crown, everything I have is worthless. I throw it down to sing worthy are you. Our Lord and God receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the depiction that we get from the throne of majesty where Jesus is seated at the right hand. Christ we hear in Philippians 2 was humbled for a while. He's not anymore. Humbled to the point of death on a cross, and, and yet after he rose from the grave, he is now exalted, exalted above the heavens by God the Father and given a name above all other names so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that he is Lord. Whether you do it out of fear or whether you do it out of worship, there will not be a knee that does not bow before him. He's sitting at his throne and the scene that John tried to explain for us in the holy places, in the true tent, not some place uh, erected or concocted by men. He's in the heavens, in the holy of holies. Remember the compare and contrast. Where, where are the priests in the line of Aaron? This is what he wants you to think of. <laughs> not in the heavens. Not in the true tent. Not sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Remember, they're still trying to decide, who will I follow? What will I do? No, the, the priests from Aaron are still running around frantically 
making sacrifices. They cannot sit, they cannot rest, and they certainly aren't exalted. They're in a tent that some dude put up. Right, where, where are they at? They're, they're in the thing that Ed put up. Where's Jesus? In heaven. These priests of Aaron still killing animals. Still working their tails off, not realizing that the work's done. Still shedding blood. Still trying to clean themselves. Still trying to clean you. And yet Jesus is sitting. The cleansed work has already been finished. This is why Revelation 5.9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Levitical priests could never take away sins, no matter what they did. This is the reference. They could not open the scroll because they were not worthy. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, could, and he did. And so now after it, he sits as it is finished. But his sitting is a, is a statement, meaning that the, the work of atonement is, is finished, but yet Jesus isn't done. Christ, as the exalted one, is still serving recovering sinners and, 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 and new believers. He's still interceding. He's not gloating. He's not resting. He's not mailing it in. He's not uh, disconnecting. He's not saying, I've done enough for you fools. You figure it out. He's still in his exalted state. How many exalted people then work for the people underneath of them? Him still in his exalted state is still working and praying and interceding and going to the Father for you. Verse 3 talks about the gifts offered by the high priests. And the illustration is that the old covenant priests... The only gift that they had to bring was, was the, the killing of more animals and the shedding of worthless blood, and yet Jesus gave the perfect sacrifice, and then he's still giving us gifts through constantly interceding for us so that we'll make it all the way home. Friends, he didn't have to do this, and yet he did. More proper, he didn't have to do this, and yet he's still doing it. He still serves you. Shouldn't this create awe and wonder from that picture of where he is and who he is and what he's doing? The exalted Christ will never stop extending kindness and mercy and love towards those that are his. He'll never stop. I've done it all. I'm still going to lean in and intercede. Again, the old covenant priests were intense they were just copies. They were imperfect replicas. That was the idea before. They, they were kind of given a vision. This is what it could look like. In their memory, they tried to make their best version of it that they could. And Jesus is not in a replica. He's in the real thing. He's at the throne room of God, exalted and glorified. The author is clearly showing us that the other things that we follow, the other priests, actual or metaphorical, the other things that we try and have represent in between us and God, the other things that we depend on, that we run to, that, that try and make us feel clean or make us feel better, they're not the real thing. At best, they're a cheap knockoff. They will ultimately never satisfy you, and they're never meant to. They will not lead you to the one that does. The author leads us to see here Everything next to Jesus is a copy or a shadow or an illusion. In Christ, we have all that we need. And then as we peel the layers of the onion back in him, we have more than we could have ever hoped for. 
This leads the author to saying Christ's work and his seat and his sanctuary and his promise is all superior. And this means that we have a superior covenant as well, something greater than the old covenant. Christ now has a ministry that the text says is much more excellent than the ministry of the old covenant because it gives a better promise than the old covenant ever could. We've talked about tons of parts of the promise already. His sacrifice is enough to end all sacrifices. Through this sacrifice, we have the promises of God. After the sacrifice, he's still serving us by interceding. But there's even more, something that we need to see inside of this. And the author quotes uh, Jeremiah 31 at length in what we see as verse 8 through 12 here in the text. And as we read back over that text again, uh, what you need to understand is these are the words of God in the first person. So the I and the me and the my, this is God speaking for himself. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after the days, declares the Lord. This is part of the good part. I will put my laws into their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each other. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least to the greatest. God declared himself in the Old Testament that something new was coming a new covenant. For so many, they kind of got caught off guard thinking, you know, uh, we didn't know. How, how should we have expected this? And then over and over again, what the author is showing us is he, he said it on repeat in the Old Testament. God was going to replace the, the old covenant priests and the old covenant altogether. The author is showing once again, this has been prophesied about. This is not new. This is not tangent side information. This was always the plan. And why did it happen? Because the old covenant was lacking. It was, as the text says, weak. Not only could it not atone for the sins of its people, but it also lacked in power to actually change anyone. This part I want you to focus in on. The old covenant was inherently external in every way to the people of God. Not internal, external. What do I mean? Well, it was written on stone tablets up on a mountain where the people weren't and then delivered to them by a man. And then this covenant was mediated by other men, meaning they depended on the high priest to kind of carry it out, to do whatever sacrifices or things that they needed. And they weren't even involved in the working of it out. It was mediated in the holy places where the people couldn't go written on rocks, brought down to them, and covered by other people in places that they couldn't even be. There was this distance, this outward element, this external nature to the whole thing, and because of that, it couldn't do very much to change the internal heart of men and women. It was weak in its ability to change the heart. Does that mean that the law and all the things in it are bad? No, no, it teaches really good things, and there's good tenets in it, Right? King David, it's like sweet, it's, it's honey to my lips, there's good things in it. It's the, the problem is the external nature couldn't change you. 
So God declares this new covenant that I'm going to establish with my people. I'm not going to write it on stone tablets that get carried down for them. I'm going to write it on their minds and their hearts. It's going to be inside of them. See the switch? I won't write it on stone tablets. Instead, hearts that used to be stone, I will make them hearts of flesh. This new covenant is going to affect them internally and it's going to change them. It will have the power to change and the power to transform as it gets lived out inside of them, not outside like the old one. In the Old Testament, we see it declared pretty clearly that sin has brought humanity to a point of despair. If you look around, you can kind of see this. You don't look at the news and go like, man, we're crushing it. Look how awesome everything is. People are so nice and good and holy. No, you're like, that's not happening. It's not that accidentally we do sinful things here and there when we slip up. The reality is the fall has so thoroughly marred humanity. It's so twisted and sickened the hearts of men and women from birth that we aren't people who sin every once in a while. We're sinners that do what we do. We sin. Our hearts aren't pure. We do not seek God. We do not seek his glory. From our core, from the depths of who we are, we need a redeeming miracle because something is broke. And God meets this need by giving us new hearts in our union with Christ. This is the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares it powerfully. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old heart, the old man, the old Adam has been put to death. Just as Christ died on the, the cross and we're united with him in his death because thy old heart and the old self is put to death just like Jesus was on the cross. And this is a picture of baptism. And just as Christ was raised again on the third day, the new man, the the new heart, alive in Christ, we're no longer who we used to be if we are in Jesus. We aren't just those who profess Jesus when it suits us. We are those who've been given a new heart by our Savior, Jesus, when he saved us. Our union with Christ comes with a heart transplant, not rocks that have laws written on them. Our union with Christ comes with internal power, not a tent we can't get inside of. And our union with Christ doesn't get walked out by some other man. Christ carries it out inside of us as he walks with us and leads us. As the Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us and directs our path because Christ has made the perfect sacrifice to make us new and he's now praying for us the whole way so that we make it all the way home. In every way, this new covenant is superior. It's much better because it actually changes men and women. There's still more. It doesn't just have a superior result. The new covenant, which Jesus carries out in his power and maintains for us, it also creates superior relationships with us and God. So we see in the old covenant, it was declared that that God would take a people for himself uh, and and he would be their God uh, and they would be his people. But it it didn't really work out that way fully. Not all of Israel actually knew God, right? Because they kept doing their own thing. The desire of the covenant was union, but not everyone partook in this union. With the new covenant, the heart of the old covenant is going to be accomplished in Jesus. God, to those who are in Christ, gives himself to them. Let your heart hear this. God, in a deeper level than you know, has said, I am yours and I am united with you and to you. 
This is what gets carried out in this new covenant. Of course, God is a creator of all creation. Every single thing in creation from all the the animals and gnats and and ocean and mountains, all of creation uh, kind of understands God in some sort of creator sense. But this is not the sense that that, that it's talking about in the new covenant. The, The united with God is going to be this tender, truer relationship, heart to heart, soul to soul. God gives himself to his people. I will be your God. And breathtakingly, he also takes us to be his people, his bride. For every heart that feels unworthy and rejected and unlovable and forgettable, God says, I take you as my own. I want you and I paid for you. I don't just align uh, with you in word. I align with you in relationship. I am yours and you are mine all by the work of Christ on the cross. This is the picture of the restoration of the garden in Genesis. And they walked with him and they knew him unhindered relationship with God on high. This is the hope. See the beauty of verse 11. In the old covenant, knowing the Lord was passed down from person to person. So like stories of God. How would you know about God? Somebody would tell you a story of old. This is what he's like, and this is what my great-grandpa taught me. And, and so these are the stories, and you, you shared about God through old words and through old stories, but now you know God not through a story that your grandma told you. You know God because you're united with him through Jesus. You know him personally, not in word. Your heart knows him. You have been made new. You're connected with him. He is your God and you are his. Your knowing is no longer based upon external information. You know him because he's written his laws on your heart. God has given you a new heart and access to him through Jesus. You aren't some peasant begging to get close to the king. You're a son or daughter connected through Jesus. This is a breathtaking reality. Relationship with God, like felt, experienced, tangible relationship with God is available to any from the greatest to the least. Right? There's no income level or knowledge level or, or anything like that tied to it. From every tribe and every tongue, come one, come all who are thirsty for a living relationship with God. Come all, even with your sketchy past, come on. He can give you a new heart a new future, a new relationship, a new eternity. He'll be merciful to you even in your weakness and your iniquity. Even if you feel dirty, remember Christ has paid for it all. It says in the text, he won't remember your sin because of what Jesus has done. He closes in verse 13 this chapter out by saying, speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one become obsolete. It's as if to say the new covenant is so far superior to the first that it eclipses so much in power and in nature that the old is just kind of vanishing away and it doesn't even count. Behold, the new has come. Take joy in what is available to you. Not external rules, but a new transformed heart. Not living vicariously through the relationship someone else has with God but your own. A perfect sacrifice, a perfect priest, a new perfected heart, unrelenting prayer for you even in your weekdays, unhindered path to the throne of God the whole time, an unhindered path to the presence, power, and relationship of God. The question just becomes, how will you respond to that? Will you be moved? 
We ask the Lord to help you lean deeper into that. We ask the Lord to give you all and stir your heart for this or you be content with shadows and imitations and lesser things. What will you do? I think we can all kind of feel in moments like this, the, the wrestle that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In response today, I think there's two easy and necessary ways to probably respond. You can do one or both. It's to repent and exalt. In this reality, what will you do with this? Repentance and exaltation. Repentance isn't a dirty word. It's not detention. It's a part of Christian maturity. There might be a part of us that we need to just repent. Lord, man, I've gone to shadows and lesser things. I've just got so much in my hands. It's all worthless. I don't even know why I ran to it and why I grabbed a hold of it, but Help me turn back to you and leave that stuff behind. Let me, let me put it back in its proper context. Lord, I, man, I, I, don't even, I don't even know how this has happened. I, help me turn to you. I, I want to lean into you instead of the shadows. I want the real thing and not the fake thing. Draw me as I draw near to you. God, help me. Let me run towards you, not away from you. This is a normative thing for the people of God. Let me see you more and more and more. And every time I slip up or mess up or run to the wrong thing, help return me. And then exaltation is where we magnify, glorify, and give praise to God. Our culture is so good at exalting ourselves. But in the light of this great news, we need to lay down our pride and our, our, our normal operating mode and lift up the Father and give him the praise due to his name. This is a part of worship. If you begin to look through the, the Old Testament and look through the, the Psalms, you, you're, you're going to hear this word kind of on repeat, ascribe to God the glory that is due to his name. Stop giving it to other things. Stop ascribing it to other things. Put the glory back on his name and his person where it should be. This can happen in a lot of ways. It can happen in, in raising your hands to say, you, I submit to you, you are worthy, you're good, I, I, I need you, you're holy, and, and you're powerful, and you're not like me, and... And it can't just be thanking him. Man, you're holy and you're righteous and you're merciful and you're patient. You're more glorious than anything else. This exaltation looks a whole lot, in my mind, like the Lord's Prayer. Remember when Jesus taught him to pray? In the, in, in the beginning, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, and that's not just like an entry. The beginning of prayer from the heart of God's people ends up being, man, I so easily put other things in your place. Let, let, let me keep your name in its right spot. Let me hallow and revere and glorify and ascribe glory to you because you are above all things. The first thing in prayer is not my need or, or, or my want or my felt perception of all things. What I need the most is to see you for who you are. God, you're exalted and good and glorified. Let me see you. Give him the respect and weight that he should have. I think those are the responses to this. This is who our Savior is. Our Savior is at the right hand of the Father. Our Father has done all of this to show his love. He has secured it all. He's offered up a relationship with him, and he, begs, or he bids for us to come and draw near to him. What will you do with that? Will you take it or will you leave it? The beauty is when we lean deeper and deeper and deeper into the relationship of God, the upside-down kingdom becomes more revealed to us. That's where we find life and joy. What will you do with the risen Savior?
band, you guys can come back up. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Remember, the gateway into all of this is the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why we're taking communion every week, right? It's because we're remembering it is because of Christ that the work is finished and the sacrifice is made. So every week we come to the table in the same way that we say the beginning of my prayer should be, God, let me see you rightly. The, the, the centerpiece of our gathering should be, let me, rem- let me be reminded of what you did on the cross because without it I have nothing here and there's no point. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, I I pray that when you come to the table today, that the beauty of the sacrifice of what Jesus has done would would just be large on your heart. It's finished. And and he's praying for you and interceding for you to show you that his work is enough. Would you take it with gladness today? We'll have uh, some time for prayer. We're going to sing, and there'll be a a gap that will extend a little bit. We're still trying to put it into our our, our liturgy to, uh, to just give you time to respond to give you time for, for whether it be repentance or exaltation that your heart needs to do, why would you walk out without wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is? And so we'll just spread a little time uh, there. We'll, we'll back away from the instruments. And, and I just ask you to go to the Lord in prayer. If there's too many things in your hands, will you drop them? You say, Father, help me run back to you. And maybe you're full of, uh, of the Lord. Maybe, maybe this is a great season, a Lent season, and different things, and, and your heart is, is just churning for who he is, then, then just exalt him. Thank him. He's worthy. He is good. He is kind. Tell him that. Ascribe to him the glory due to his name. I don't think there's anyone who walks out with no play from this. Repent or exalt. Repent or exalt or do both so we can see him in his right place. Would you stand with me?